Welcome to the Insights to Action, Inspirational Insights podcast. My name is Donna Jones. With me today is Chris Alainwaller from What If Foods in Singapore slash Malaysia. <laughs> Chris, as he's more widely known, has, is a serial entrepreneur, lots of, of different companies behind him, and a global experience as well. What we're here to talk about today, though, is how to set up a regenerative business. It's a whole lot easier to talk about it than it is to actually do it. We're going to pick Chris's brain on what he's learned, what he's doing, and just learn from it. So Chris, welcome to the program. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this 30 minutes or an hour, however long it takes us. I share as much as I possibly can. Well, I know we're all going to learn from you because as I say, it's not easy. You're currently the CEO of What If Foods. What does the What If stand for? What if is essentially a provocative uh, company name that indicates the very DNA of who we are. And that is just challenging and asking continuous, challenging status quo and asking ourselves, so what if we do things differently? What if sustainability is not enough? Those sort of provocative questions we keep on asking ourselves. And we did so from the early get-go of the organization. When we debated as to how we should call our brand and so on and so forth, uh, we said, if you want to be authentic, then let's say what we do in our name. And here we go. We call ourselves Body Foods. That's great. You talk about a regenerative business. What exactly does that mean in practical, real business terms? The way we are approaching generating the business or building the business to start with is based on a couple of foundational challenges that we probably have to address before I get going explaining what we actually do regeneratively. In that sense, we are today living in a day and age where only 12 crops and five animals make more than 75% of all food that is being consumed globally, despite probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands species being good for human consumption. As we evolved from our early ancestors, we basically fed ourselves with hundreds of different species, insects, plants, crops, and you name it, every now and then, we might have been lucky and had a piece of meat, particularly after we knew how to lit fire. Now, if you look at evolutionary term, this is 10,000 years of evolution that has taken place. Yet, the human race in the last 50, 80 years, particularly after the Green Revolution started in the Second World War, we have taken a total different path to how we make and how we consume foods. To such an extent that we were driven by just rationalizing and focusing and bringing in efficiencies for economies of scale in order to essentially make stuff cheap and affordable for the masses, which was absolutely the right thing to do after the Second World War because people were hungry. Yet we have not really appreciated the fact that by rationalizing ourselves with such few crops, we are not only depriving ourselves from a huge basket and array of nutrients that we need to be healthy and well, but we also took away the opportunity for our farming community to do proper crop rotation, to actually go back into a system thinking rather than linear monoculturing stuff. The consequences are that today, seven people out of 10 suffer from what we put on their plates. To quote Yuval Noah Harari, famously in his book, Homodeo said that gunpowder kills less people than food today. An old thought, but so true. So we have more people being overweight and obese uh, than people go uh, to bed hungry. 
Now, that is largely politically driven, but here we go, we still have that problem. So the entire human race today suffers from things like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, heart strokes, hearts, heart attack strokes, bowel cancer, colon cancer, and they're all diet-related issues. So that predominantly resides on the fact that we have rationalized away our diverse basket of a diverse diet. And therefore, if we are not well, how can we expect another biological system to be well, which is our soil, our ground, our habitats? By just growing a few crops, for example, the top three crops in the world make more than 60% of all calories that are being consumed. Rice, wheat, and corn together. We know thousands of crops being good for human consumption, yet we feed ourselves on just those three. So what that does is it empties our lands. When we say emptying our lands, what we mean by that is basically saying that if you go in the gym and you keep on working your biceps, you might have the biggest biceps of them all, but your other body is weak and you are actually sick. The same thing is with uh, growing crops in a monoculture system. You can put steroids on it, like uh, fertilizers, pesticides, and uh, herbicides and all of that, and you might have a wonderful crop, but the system underneath is broken. The system underneath is sick, and it delivers just a very empty calorie base. How can we expect to have communities that are well? Because at the end of the day, what they grow in these free crops their price-finding mechanism doesn't happen at the farm, doesn't happen at local communities. It happens somewhere in a weird system. Probably nobody knows where really the money is being made. So they're deprived from markets that otherwise would give them the opportunity to start crop rotating, to start bringing other crops in and so on and so forth. So that is what is the foundational model of our thinking. That's what we would like to resolve. It's not very often you come across an entrepreneur that actually understands systems. So I have to applaud you for for being able to see beneath the surface. Right now, I think more than anything, we've got a disconnection between the health and the vitality of the underlying system and what's going on at the top just to make the money. I really appreciate you starting off with getting that context laid out for us. And clearly, that's the inspiration for what you're going to talk about next. Right. Really, I mean, it gives the foundation of of our thinking. Let me compare it with the first stone in a sort of a domino system. If you chip off the first stone, an entire chain reaction is falling in place. And here, I think, is a core difference to how we have built the organization as compared to others and how they approach it. The very fact that we are operating a business is setting a chain reaction in place that regenerates in a whole, in a system, rather than saying, okay, I'm an existing organization, and here I have a program that looks after how can I now grow this particular crop regeneratively, which to us, again, it is just a little, doing a little bit, things a little bit better than otherwise, but we would like to actually take on the entire system, and we did so, and we proved ourselves that we are capable and able to do so. The system is so wide and so big, and there are so many challenges in front of us that you have to be selective, and you have to focus on what is realistically doable for an organization, a startup company. You can't take on everything. You need to be a little bit selective and focused. What we have been thinking about is to basically say, look, there are about 2.6 billion people that make a living from agricultural uh, activities. 75% of those are the poorest of the poor. They really struggle. Now, what's even more frightening is that more than half of their arable farming land is severely degraded already or is degrading at a speed unprecedented in human history, 35 times faster 
than all our records show. If you have a factory and you have two production lines and one production line is not working, you better go and fix it. If it works, but you don't have the market, you better make a product that you can sell in the market. You do something about it. We have this empowered the farming community to do something on that land. Why? Because they don't have markets to supply product into that could grow on that degraded arable land. Because the current system with these 12 crops and five animals requires a certain quality of soil. That certain quality of soil is found if you go into the Amazon region. You deforest, you have a fresh soil, a patch, you grow soy, and then you supply it again. That is not regeneration, not the way we define it. So we're trying to go back into this huge array of forgotten crops, for a lack of a better definition, and select for those sort of fascinating crops that have the production capacity to grow on that sort of challenged land, as well as have a nutritional profile that enables us to replenish the nutrients that consumers need for their busy days. We select for nutritional properties as well as soil requirements. Once we have done that work, a fascinating journey starts that probably costs a lot of money, I have to say, <laughs> because it, it's just expensive to build supply chains and build technologies. Because if you have a system that relies on processing only these 12 crops, the entire production houses, these factories that are all over the world, are so specialized that if you supply a raw material to that factory that is slightly off, the factory comes to a standstill, let alone a forgotten crop. Forgotten crops don't run in existing factories. We said, so what if we devise a system, we invent a new production line by asking ourselves, what if we actually take the deep fryer out of deep frying instant noodles, for example. What's happening there and what are the possibilities? We deploy science and technology to identify these opportunities to make use of these wonderful new crops in then convenience foods that are comforting us in the evenings or in the mornings over a cappuccino and get going in that way. This entire re chain reaction that I was talking about earlier uh, is what we call being a regenerative business, thinking from literally soil and community right through to nourishing consumers on the other end. We are just the enabler, uh, the production house that makes it happening. It's a phenomenal landscape, the way you describe it. Give us an example of what a forgotten food is. What would that? Forgotten foods and forgotten crops are literally everything that we don't consume anymore, right? So there might be several reasons. Uh, but in specific, we have been focusing on, on a couple of those. The most work we've put in is the Bambara groundnut. The Bambara groundnut is a fascinating crop. It has a very, very hard skin, a seed coat. Honestly, it sometimes... <laughs> makes you break your fingers. <laughs> it's, it's not an easy crop to work with, to be, to be quite honest. You have to throw a couple of smart ideas behind it in order to make it work. But let me give you the answer why the Bambara groundnut. The Bambara groundnut is a forgotten crop, originates out of West Africa, and has survived all these decades of commodity crop pressures and cash crop pressures. It has survived this because women just sow it randomly in the backyards and harvest the Bavara groundnut and store it for bad days to come. I call it an insurance crop and it's predominantly done by women. Therefore, communities still know how to do it 
That's about 300,000 metric tons per year is the estimated production predominantly in West Africa. What's interesting is the Bambara ground that actually originates in Mali. There is a tribe called the Bambara tribe and they speak a language called Bambara and this is where the name comes from. Actually, the Bambara groundnut is botanically a legume. And as a legume, it has this wonderful property of being able to fixate nitrogen. The Bambara groundnut uh, actually grows on very sandy soil, on very broken, very poor soils. It doesn't like rich soils at all, because then the other crops actually take over this drive. The Bambara groundnut needs this degraded lands, as we call it. What's so beautiful is it has this capacity and ability to actually make extremely complex and long root systems. They can be up as 1.5 meters to 2 meters and reach down into the soil and actually help bring water tables up again. It actually moistens the soil in the entire field where otherwise um, water is just being taken away for one second. With that long root system that goes down as a legume, it has this uh, symbiotic relationship with microorganisms that fixates nitrogen. So there's life being formed. There's organic matter being left behind after harvest. You start a chain reaction that brings actually life back into that soil using the Bambara groundnut. And on challenged soil, you do that for a number of years, say three years, for example. And then enough uh, nitrogen being fixated in there, you can come back with some sort of a grain, like a millet, for example. And then you basically harvest the grain and you come back then thereafter with the legume again. And uh, you have a regenerative system. You have a system that feeds on top of each other, make sure that you keep on building life. And that is the wonderful solution there. We have really, really tried to investigate Dipabara groundnut. We found scientists who have 30 years plus experience in it. We actually built our knowledge on the basis of their research work. What we did is basically say, okay, how can we build outreach programs to communities in West Africa, also Southeast Asia and northern parts of Australia? How can we build these outreach programs and how can we get going using this wonderful legume as a crop to present it to farmers as a means to actually switch on regenerative agriculture systems. Regeneration for us has three elements, replenish, restore, and reconnect. The restoring part is where we bring these regenerative crops back to the farmers to enable them to build systems that are regenerative in, in, in the first place. I'm talking a lot about system thinking. I'm talking a lot about circular thinking rather than linear. And I think that's the essence of regeneration. And it's funny because as you're talking, I'm seeing this map of dots and all of these things. Now, most business owners are, are only focused on one thing, profit. It, that's it. And then they screen out everything that makes profit. They screen out engagement. You, you're focusing on a whole bunch of things at once. How do you keep a strong sense of the dynamic play, the balance, the interplay between all of these things that you're watching for? How does that work? Obviously, you're bringing a different kind of thinking to it, but you're also bringing a pretty sophisticated level of skill set for being able to hold the big picture and know exactly which lever to push at any point in time. Does that ring true at all? I find it very, very difficult to talk about myself and my skill set, but if you point me down and ask those sort of questions. What comes to mind immediately is that, look, uh, I have gray hairs. I'm around a fair bit. I grew up on a farm. My father was a butcher. My uncle was a butcher. We had, we had cattle and dairy cows back home. I grew up in Salzburg. We had a huge restaurant in the center of a village. I grew up in that community. Um, 
every time I speak about it, my grandfather comes to mind, who was like the Facebook of the village way back then. He was social media. Uh, he planted stories here and there, and he was loving it. And people loved him for it, right? So I grew up like that. I saw this. I then educated myself into agriculture, food science, as well later on doing uh, an MBA in marketing and in finance. I came about a fair bit in the world, and I saw a little bit. But I think what is really, really, really important, much more important than I, are the people around me. I have colleagues around me who are foresters by training, have been responsible globally for sustainable programs, have led you know, small outreach programs in the thousands. Uh, I have people around me who run factories for 20 or 25 years and have been building factories and CapEx programs. I have people around me who have been early people at Red Bull, for example, who have built brands and sports marketing and advertisement. One can say that Chris is actually quite a lazy bastard because I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to recruit people that are so much better than I am just for me to have a good time. <laughs> I've never said that before. It's the first time I'm saying this. So. <laughs> there <laughs> you it have it. True, actually. <laughs> actually, it's true. Keeping the eyes on the price and making sure that we deliver on our promise can only be achieved if the entire company can come and unite behind what we're trying to do. Quite frankly, we have so many people reaching out to us, wanting to say, hey, can we have a job? Can we have an internship? Can we actually do something? Can we be part of your social media? And so on and so forth. It is really, really energizing to see that what we try to do, I mean, we are a tiny, small company. We just got started. We, know we are not a big organization yet. Hopefully we are, because then we have a huge impact. But despite our size, we already attract talent, which is fascinating. You know, fascinating for me to then welcome these people with open hands. We have people that just left university. They bring so much energy into it. It's just absolutely fantastic. So guiding that is also not too difficult if you're a company that's led by such a huge purpose. The, the purpose sells itself to the employees, and that's a very, very easy job to do. It's not Chris who is, the, who is the secret sauce in all of this. It is the mix of people that are so diverse. I think the last time I counted, we are speaking more than 17 different languages. We come from 14 or 15 different countries, despite us being a small, small company. That makes it lively. That brings so many different thinking processes together and aspects. So I enjoy that every day, to be honest. Wonderful. We've talked a bit about the nuances of culture. Because you've got that many cultures being represented, you're going to have different conversations based on the different environments that you're working in. How does the, the language change? How does the conversation change from a product development and product um, distribution point of view, moving from one culture to another? How does the language change? The standard answer I give is that one should think globally and what we want to resolve on a global uh, basis, but you need to act very locally or regionally. And I think what is uh, going to be very, very important, particularly in the aspect of our restore, which is deploying regenerative agricultural system thinking. What's really, really important is to appreciate the region you're in. Look, if there is a river running through a creek, it's a different setup and different requirement than if you work on a mountainous terrain or in the sub-Saharan region. It's totally different environments. The communities are different. The cultures are different. The needs are different of these cultures and these uh, communities. What works in Australia doesn't work in West Africa and vice versa. What we are trying to do is really adopt a very, very localized approach to it. But I can give you an example, if I may do so. 
in northern parts of Ghana, northern parts of Tamale, which is the northern capital of Ghana, there are communities whereby the, the village heads annual saving is $20. I bet you a baseball cap costs more than $20, especially here in Singapore. So what does that mean? It means that if we come to them thinking we can incentivize them by talking about deploying a tractor, that's an illusion. It is just meaningless for them because these communities have a daily routine, which is four hours walk to bring water home to their families. So we need to work with them totally different. We have to resolve these Maslow's hierarchies of needs base layer first before we can tap into a little bit more evolved practices. Because if we go to these communities and say, hey, we would buy more Bambara ground, not if you grow more, they will say, but I don't have the hours to actually post-harvest treat them because I need to go for four hours to bring water back into my village. Unless and until we resolve the water issue, I cannot expect them to deploy more working hours on the production of, of, of that crop. The situation in Australia is totally different. The South in Australia, the farmers have huge landowners, and with it comes that banks have financed over decades their operation. Now, if you have run out of positive markets and you haven't been profitable for decades, I don't have to tell you how your bank account looks like as a farmer. They're all in huge debts. And for them, the situation is a totally different one. We were going to say, oh, you have a peanut harvester over there. Is that something we can use over here? And can we deploy that over here? We use these assets that are around in a system to produce what we would need with them. That is a totally different approach to listening to them, to their needs, than we do in West Africa. Both is fascinating. I don't know which one is better. And it doesn't matter. It shouldn't be actually quantified. It is just the different needs. And we need to appreciate that. I think the beauty of what you've just said is that you're starting with the needs. And then moving from there, that's the fundamental opportunity that business faced with any kind of interruption. They've got the opportunity to return to work. All these other issues are all need to be grounded in human needs. So I love that because it's a real solid illustration of the importance of that as a foundation for anything getting done. We've talked a bit about how you were inspired. What I'd love to just give our audience is, is a sense of the journey that you took to get to this place because you meandered, shall we say. <laughs> Maybe just explain that, if you don't mind, <laughs> from the streets of Salzburg. Next time I meet my mom, I haven't seen her for so many years because of COVID, I need to ask her how she would describe that question, because so I would be really, really interested how, how she answers it. I've always been one that has been inspired by the, the bigger picture. I've always found it very, very difficult to bother about the details. My wife suffers on that quite a fair bit because the detailed work I leave to her while I'm trying to keep an, an eye on the bigger picture. Primary school, secondary school was a tough, tough challenge for me because dyslectic, way back then, there was no support system in place. So it was quite tough. I only found love with learning the moment spelling didn't matter that much anymore because then I was not judged on the spelling aspect, but actually, can I think like a system? Can I read something and apply it over here. That is something that I really enjoyed the most. We left our hometown more than 20 years ago. I, I worked in the UK, in Russia. I built a business in India. I took it to China. I exited from the business. I worked for a bunch of multinationals. And I started this journey that ultimately got us to Wadi Foods. What's so crucial is that over the decades, 
I started to understand all of this data and I started to make sense of how they are connected. How is that system really set up? One thing that happened to me was the realization that I would not like to give my grandchildren the opportunity to stand in front of their grandfather and ask, so granddad, you knew all of this, yet you haven't done anything about it. And from that motivation of not being asked that that, that question, I think I've become restless with trying to solve issues that many seem unsolvable, trying to go from the soil and farming communities to nourishing consumers is quite a stretch for many. Yet, I know it, and I couldn't bear the burden of not having had a good try to do it. And that's where my motivation comes from, if that makes sense. It's brilliant, and it certainly does make sense. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I'd like to ask you now a couple of things. We've talked about the, the pillars of your company, but I'm also interested in how you decide where to put your time because you've got lots of options <laughs> in front of you. How do you make the decision to know what to invest your time in? What are the principles you use? You know, how do you approach that? That's a good question. I, I need to step back and pause and think. So the, the obvious answer is I have two key performance indicators that I look at at least a couple of times in a week. If not, it is always the Monday that I'm looking at that together with my team. And these two key performance indicators are nothing but how many portions have we sold and how is the cash flow? How does the cash flow look like? As an entrepreneur, we always say profit is vanity, turnover is sanity, cash is the only reality. And I just don't want to get into a position where as a startup company, we are running out of cash. So cash flow is, is king. Cash is king. I keep an eye on that very, very firmly. And then the portions. How many portions have we placed in the market? How many portions have we got in there? Do we have problems with the portions? Why is that important? Simple, because the moment we one portion is being sold, a chain reaction takes place and everything starts falling from there. So these are the two crucial aspects as an entrepreneur that I look at on a day-to-day -day basis. The rest of my time is really trying to have increasingly my voice out there with people such as yourself, trying to advocate for the cause, trying to have my voice out there that sounds a bit different than probably others. The way we approach the future of food is one of a vibrant, colorful, diverse and inclusiveness rather than driven by science for the sake of an exit for capital, which is different to how we approach it. So that is another aspect of things that I'm doing. And the third part is I just spend as much time as I possibly can with my employees, with my fellow colleagues, trying to listen in to them and say, hey, tell me what happened to you just last week? I know that your family had COVID-19. Is there anything we can do? Is there a support that you need? Is there anything that can organize for you? What about your mother? I've heard she has fallen sick. And things like that, just caring and worrying about the, the employees um, so that they get the sense that they belong not only to the course, but to the, the team as a whole, to the family. These are my three things. Naturally, I have to look at the cash. I have to make sure that the chain reaction is being set in motion. I would like to have my voice out there in order to have more people understand what we are doing and why we are doing it. And last but not least, probably is the first thing, I spend as much time as I possibly can with my folks. 
uh, trying to listen in to them. Particularly now, it is so important. I have not been in our factory for almost two years because of COVID-19. I could not go to Australia for almost two years because of COVID. It saves traveling time, but the human connections going into a room and sensing what's going on for them without them saying anything is not possible via Zoom. I'm honestly missing that a lot. I, I really do miss that a lot. I miss the chit chat over a corridor lunch or a dinner with folks and have them say what bothers them. Because of that, it is so important to carve out time to at least use the technology to be with them on a one-to-one -one basis. The one word you've said there that resonates is care. And that is the word that brings people together, even though there's so many reasons why we could be divided and split apart at this point in time, polarization and so forth. But when you care, you can cross those bridges and sit in the mess, so to speak, in the messy conversations and find connections. So thank you. From your point of view, what lies at the core of thinking from a systems perspective? Because the big shift in thinking that we see you know, today in business leaderships is moving from linear. If we do this, then this happens. If we cut costs, then we have a higher profit. If this, then that. You're talking about a systems view. It's a much wider, much more interconnected, much more complex. You have to be much more comfortable with that level of complexity. Therefore, you're much more equipped to handle the kind of exponential change that we're in the center of. What's at the core of, of your view? What helps you anchor you in that, that multifaceted view of the world? The one word answer to that very important question is empathy. Now, if I go and explain it, I could probably go on for half an hour, an hour explaining why empathy is so important. But let me just try to encapsulate it in a nutshell. We are living in a, in a very linear environment, very linear thinking. Nathan Merwold, former chief technology officer at Microsoft and once held by Bill Gates as one of the brightest brains in the world, said that we are living in a day and age where specialization is being rewarded, but it comes at a cost because more and more people know more and more about less and less until they know everything about nothing. Once you are down there in this small bucket of knowledge that makes you very competitive in your field, it is very difficult to understand what's going on outside, let alone the capacity to have empathy for what's going on on the other side. The core to me on a regenerative system thinking is that the design of it doesn't start in a classroom. It doesn't start on a whiteboard. It doesn't start in a book, but it starts with getting your hands dirty. Be out there, have your forehead wet, either from the rain or from the sweat because the sun is shining. And experience what it means to eat consciously, to eat with intent, do it once in a week. Sit down and eat with intent. Celebrate the food that is in front of you. Or go out and listen to the farmers and hear them say, we switch to agri-regenerative practices because we can't afford input costs anymore. That's a message we hear from communities. Why is that the case? Those sort of questions can only come if your heart is open and your vulnerability to shine through, but allows an empathetic conversation that is embedded in that. I think this is where it comes from. We are not an, as a bunch of esoteric people. We are a hardcore for-profit organization that is measured by the return 
on the capital for our shareholders, for my partners. But it is also important for us and for my colleagues to know that we are carefully selecting the partners. Because if we bring in the wrong capital, our path might be taken into the direction we don't like. We know because of our R&D work that we do, looking at additional profit pools while we are researching and all of that stuff that we haven't touched on yet. Because of that work that we do, we know we can return exponentially the capital that is being deployed and given to us. So I don't worry about that uh, too much. What I worry about is whether or not a set of shareholders that resonate with our value deeply so that in essence, they are also willing to create more life, which is the definition of regeneration. Let's create more life. For us, it is all about SDG 15, life on land. How can we maximize it? And in return, prosperity will sit in, not only for our shareholders and my partners, but for the communities, as well as our employees and for the consumers out there. It doesn't have to be, I win, you lose. It can very well be, I win, communities win, we all win together. Well, I cannot come up with a question that could top the quality, the richness, and the depth of the answer you just gave to that one. I think we, we, better, we better stop here because that was so beautifully stated and so fluent. I, I just really applaud you for, for what you're doing, how you're doing it, your vision, your solidly rooted anchor in purpose. It's absolutely brilliant. I'm so very grateful to you for having this conversation with me on this episode I'll do my best to get the word out. (laughs) Thank you so So, much. So more people understand that, as you said, we've got to have at least tried to look after the vitality of the entire system and not just the suck it dry to serve our own needs. Anything you want to add? I just want to give you a big round of applause for doing what you're doing. I'm so grateful for you helping us to get the word out. If there's any more thing I can do in order to to support you in this, do count on me. I hope that it gives uh, one or two of the listeners on the podcast one or two ideas can spark maybe another company that ultimately rivals with us for a better world. That would be my wish. Thank you very much for the opportunity here. To pretend that we don't need to change ourselves in the context of very rapid change is a bit of an illusion. I think the opportunity now is to really step into the messy parts of change to become more whole. The question is, who do we become through what is challenging? If you enjoyed this program, please share it. My consulting work involves three pillars, decision-making in complexity, navigating and expanding awareness of context That's the one pillar. The second is about adaptive agility and capacity, developing that personally and internally, accessing a wider range of intelligences. And the third pillar is self-development, becoming very strongly connected to your fullest potential, your wider range of, of abilities and capabilities so that you can live the life that is fulfilling and contributes to a better world. We've become so disconnected from the natural world that it is time we reconnect and regenerate the health of all the systems that form life on the planet at home and at work. Thank you for joining me. 
My name is Donna Jones. Connect to me on LinkedIn, D-A-W-N-A-H-J-O-N-E-S, Donna Jones, or on Twitter at E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones. Or you can connect to me on Instagram at InsightfulDonna. We'll see you at the next episode. Thank you for joining me.